This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Sean Askinosi is CEO and founder of Askinosi Chocolate, as well as author of the book, Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. Askinosi Chocolate is a small-batch award-winning chocolate factory located in Springfield, Missouri, sourcing 100% of their beans directly from farmers in regions all over the world and sharing profits with them. The Askinosi Chocolate mission is to serve farmers, their neighborhoods, their customers, and each other by leaving the world a better place than they found it. So far, the company has provided over a million school lunches to malnourished children in Tanzania and the Philippines without any donations. Askinosi Chocolate was named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America, and Sean was also named by O, the Oprah magazine, as one of 15 guys who are saving the world. In this episode, we talk about Sean's remarkable journey from being a phenomenally successful criminal lawyer who never lost a case in 20 years to a life-changing moment that caused him to realize he needed to leave the law. He then searched, and he speaks candidly about the imperative to explore one's grief, your own grief, your pain point, as he called it, helping others to help yourself. He founded the Lost and Found Grief Center and worked in a palliative care unit, searching, 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 as he says, for five years before finding his way to chocolate making and working intimately and directly without delegating with indigenous cocoa bean farmers in the Amazon and Tanzania and elsewhere. Sean's story is honest, sometimes wrenching, and, to me, inspirational. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate it, leave a review on iTunes, or wherever you listen, so others are more likely to find and enjoy it, too. And now, without any further ado, get set to listen to and learn from someone who struggled to find his purpose, but in doing so has hard-won, worthwhile lessons to share with all of us. It's Sean Askinosi. Sean, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, uh, thanks for making time to, uh, to join us. So you had a very successful career as a criminal defense attorney, why did you leave it? Well, I, I practiced criminal law, and my specialty or subspecialty, you could say, was the defense of murder cases. And uh, I did that for almost 20 years. Hmm. And I, I loved the courtroom. I loved everything about it. 
and felt called to it. But uh, one one day I didn't. Wait, and so it was kind of like that. Let me jump in there. You say you felt called to it. Can you say more about what called you to being a criminal defense attorney for murderers? Yeah. Well, and I would I would I would um, say one distinction: accused. I'm murderers. sorry. That's all right. That's I'm not a lawyer, so I make stupid <laughs> right. mistakes like that all the time. It's okay. But in my in my former world, that was a pretty big distinction. Of course, of course. However, the th- the thing for me, I grew up. My dad was a was a lawyer and did a lot of criminal defense work, so I I sort of grew up with that around the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Uh, in high school, I worked for a criminal defense lawyer, and I my I grew up around the notion of social justice, and um, so. It was it was uh, not a big step for me to want to do criminal law, and mm-hmm. right out of law school, I did white collar criminal law for a big law firm in Dallas, and I wanted more blue collar experience. And one thing led to another, and really, I think with my first murder case, which was a death penalty case, I sort of um, built my reputation on that one, and then everything that followed. And um, it, it was just. Uh, there's, I have to say, there's there's nothing quite like defending against the overwhelming power and wealth of a government investigation with just unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to if 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 you're the kind of person that um, fancies himself or herself as a defender of the little guy, mm-hmm. the underdog, mm-hmm. then that that's a good spot. And that's and I and I loved it, and I felt uh, challenged by it and, and excited by it. And of course, the stakes were as high as you can imagine. With, life and death. You know, yeah, life and death. And and um, I was good at it. I did not mm-hmm. lose a criminal jury trial uh, in all those years. Wow, that's an impressive so, record. Yeah. So, so what happened after twenty years? Yeah. Something happened. Yeah. The. Um, I was concluding um, a murder trial. It was particularly emotional. They all were. Mm. And it was right before uh, closing arguments. And the case was concluding. I was emotionally just wrung out. I ended up winning that case. But um, so I was in the the little uh, ante room right off the courtroom with my client. It was a very demure woman charged with first degree murder. And I was explaining to her what was going to happen next. And, uh, it was it was just an emotional moment for me. Uh, uh, I talk about it uh, at length in the book, but um, it was just an emotional moment. Mm-hmm. And 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 at that moment, literally, I look back on it now and say that's really when um, everything switched and sort of turned upside down for me. And from that time on, I just I had trouble. I had trouble um, feeling at home in the courtroom. Uh, I knew I needed to quit. I, and I needed to do something else. I tried some other specialties of the law. It didn't work. And and so I was really on this five-year-long path, winding path. I, w- I want to get to how you, yeah. how you moved on yeah. that path, but let me just yeah, jump in it. here. Yeah. Uh, no, I, we're going to go further on that, but uh, can you say what it was that happened in that moment that shifted yeah. your uh, your view of yourself? Sure. This This woman was charged with the murder of her seven-year-old daughter, and she believed, I think correctly, that her daughter was being sexually molested by her ex-husband. She had protected her daughter from him for years, and the following day, she had been ordered to give her daughter up 
for the first unsupervised visit uh, ever. And she thought that her daughter was going to suffer a fate worse than death. We pled her um, not guilty by reason of insanity, which is almost never successful. Mm. And there was a lot of evidence of it. But anyway, so we're there, and, and I was getting ready to tell. I was telling this woman uh, who she tried to kill herself, too, in the process. Her daughter died. She didn't mm-hmm. uh, in the garage and um, turning the car on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told her, I said, uh, the judge has stopped the trial. He believes our evidence of um, insanity, mm-hmm. and he wants to put you on probation. Well, that just doesn't happen. People don't get probation after being charged with first-degree murder. And so uh, – and this was just a really, really gut-wrenching trial. The jury was sequestered. I'd been up almost all night, you know, working on my closing. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I can keep going. We don't need to take this. You know, we can, I can keep going in front of the jury and we can argue, you know, for acquittal. And, and uh, she said, no, it's over. And I began to kind of tear up. And she hugged me. And the roles just complete. I, I get emotional just talking about it now, mm-hmm. but the roles just completely reversed and just hmm. changed and she was the protector hmm. not me hmm. that that was that was my job man i mean i did this for a long time and so it was it was really just like this unsettling moment did you feel like you were should... no longer protecting her and serving her and that she had to care for you is that yeah, what i did and and that was not comfortable for me i hmm. was the protector i was the defender mm-hmm. and um and so I, you know, I needed to do something. I, I could just, I, I felt it all in that moment. I didn't know what was happening. I, I just knew that there was some kind of depth of pain that needed to be reached. And, in, in yourself, um, you mean? Yes, in myself. So I did what you do when that kind of stuff comes up, and I bought a convertible Mercedes. Naturally. Yes. And um, <laughs> I thought that was. I'm sure that solved a lot of your problems, Sean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was it – was, so we can end the show right here and just give people the – All right, so that's, that's the upshot. Just buy yourself a uh, convertible. I'm sure it was red probably, right? Actually, it was white. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. that'll do. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. You got the Mercedes. Kept it four months. That was it. And four then, months. And then, yeah, and then I just kept – I kept searching, searching, searching. Hmm. And uh, the path was filled with um, a lot of revelations, and it took me five years. So, uh, I, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in this book and in your story, but while we're on the subject of your needing to plumb the depths of your soul, let me put it that way, you 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 came through that process with one of the important guidelines in your in your book being uh to uh to really focus on your own sorrow can you say more about why that became so important for you and and why it's an important thing for other people to know whether they're in a leadership role or in any role in an organization right Khalil Gibran says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And um, I don't have any tattoos, but if I was going to get one, I'd put that somewhere. Because I, li- I, I, I learned by that, and now I live by that. And 
it is, it is, it can be a painful course. You know, there can be some suffering undertaking this question of the sorrow and heartbreak in our own lives. And so for me, um, my dad died of lung cancer when I was 14 and I helped take care of him for two years and we didn't have hospice back then. And he was a physically fit former Marine and just my hero uh, Hmm. and someone I never thought anything like that would happen to. And, and I was, you know, giving him Demerol shots when I was 13, my mom couldn't do it. And it was made matters were made worse by this church prayer group that would come over and lay hands on him and say he was going to be healed and Hmm. all this weird stuff. And, and then weird in the sense that you didn't believe that that was going uh, to be realistic. uh, no, weird in the sense they were speaking in tongues and yelling, mm. and they told me to never speak of death with my dad, because if I did, that it would be a sign of doubt, and that he wouldn't be healed. Oh. And uh, That must and have so been so confusing for you. It was, and I, I, whenever my dad wanted to talk with me about this, that he might die, I pushed him away and said, don't talk about it. You were and listening was, to the church leaders. I was, I was listening to anything that would give me some hope. And he wouldn't wasn't going to die. He kept getting sicker, and then I was with him. I was with him when he died. Cancer went to his brain, and he essentially had a stroke. and And I, I felt so helpless and desperate, and I begged God to please not let him die out loud. You know, and the most desperate moment of my life. And um, and there I was. And so after I uh, gave the Mercedes back, uh, sold it back, <laughs> I I I came to this realization. This is that, now back to when you're like yeah, in your 40s, years right? Later, yeah, yeah, early 40s. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I came to this realization that I needed to have some kind of conversation with this unresolved grief in my life with my dad's death. And um, so that led me to that led me to some volunteer work. I've always done a lot of volunteer work, now, always. Before we, before we hear about that, and, and I want to yeah. hear about that, can you yeah. say what led you to the realization that there was this uh, unresolved grief? How did you how did you come to understand that? You must have, well, how, how, did, how did that occur to you? The um, This was during the beginning of the book, Tuesdays with Maury. Hmm. And uh, I bought it, I, I bought it for my wife to read, uh, meanwhile, I was reading about, you know, DNA, gunshot residue, blood spatter evidence, and that was my uh, nighttime reading. And mm-hmm. anyway, I gave that to her, and at the, and so um, she said, this is a great book, and I was like, yeah, and whatever. And my daughter, at the time, was nine. She read that book to me out loud. That book changed my life. This is Lauren. Uh, my, Lauren, my co-author in yes. the book. And mm-hmm. she read that to me out loud, and... You know, every 30 pages, I would excuse myself to go cry in private because, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be that vulnerable in front of her wow. and how ridiculous that is. But I, <laughs> I cry in front I, of my kids a lot. <laughs> well, I do now, believe me. I mean, at the drop of a hat. And I, I, in fact, I did just this weekend, uh-huh. but, um, but I, which I think is great and healthy. But, but anyway, mm-hmm. that book changed my life. I, 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 I believe in some way that God spoke to me through that book hmm. and through the words of Maury Schwartz. That's what led me to this idea that I needed to 
do something. And so, well, the first thing I did, which came from that uh, book, was I co-founded a grief center here in southwest Missouri for children and families who have experienced the death of a parent or sibling. And Mm -hmm. then next year, we're going to celebrate our 20th year. We serve thousands of kids. Is that the first Mm -hmm. thing I did? But then I Mm -hmm. and I and then I had a friend that got. I'm sure you got a lot from that yourself, and I mean, I did. as as we all do from any kind of service, right? It's not just Absolutely. about the people you serve; it's uh, it enriches your own sense of purpose and and uh, and and feeling like you're of value in the world. But please continue. So I, my friend, got another a lawyer friend of mine um, got really sick, and I he he had brain cancer, and so I, while I was founding this grief center, I realized. I, I needed help on how to help him, hmm. and so this I came to this conclusion and through through talking with a counselor that I needed to I needed to have some kind of um, I needed to begin this work on uncovering the sorrow in my life as it related to my dad's death and his sickness and and that had been buried very deep for many years and so. That's what I started doing, and that's what led me, you know, to this other volunteer work. With the monastery? Well, not with the monastery. With the um, hospice? With the hospital, yeah, Sorry. with the palliative care, palliative care mm-hmm. um, uh, which I did for almost five years. All right, so tell and, us about sure. that, and, and especially I'm interested in how your experiences in, in being a hospice care provider, how that informs your role as CEO of your chocolate-making company. The 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 answer to the last question mm-hmm. is that the the work that I did in palliative care related directly to the heartbreak in my own life, mm-hmm. and I believe with everything that I have that entrepreneurs, CEOs, leaders, anyone, uh, any adult that has experienced heartbreak. Who, can, who hasn't? Well, you, you know what? Um, you'd be surprised who won't admit it. Yeah, well, that's different. Um, I, yeah, and and and, oh, and and there are people who say, you know, well, I've never really had anybody in my family die. I don't know that I can really relate to this. Mm-hmm. So I've never had tragedy or suffered loss. And to which I say, you know, if you're an adult, let's hey, we've got a whole other conversation we need to talk about, mm-hmm. about how we're going to get your heart broken because we need to work on that. And um, – and it, but my 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 point would be mm-hmm, that 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 if you can as a leader find the pain point in your own heartbreak and then begin to serve out of that place, your um, compassion muscle will become um, exercised in a way that you have never experienced and you will experience the greatest joy of your life. And so there, every leader, entrepreneur, person in business life who can experience this, this um, I'm not a Catholic, but the Catholics talk about the Paschal Mystery, which is the passage of darkness into light, the mountaintop to the valley and back to the mountain. If we can, if we can do that, if we can pass through this mystery, then we will be better leaders, better spouses, better friends, siblings, because we will understand what it means, as Joseph Campbell said, 
to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. How could you not be a better leader and a better colleague if you have experienced this? So that's so. What does that mean to you to 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 be um, serving from that place of uh, your own uh, sorrow? It means uh, one of the one of the ways that it's really manifested itself is um, in the in the community development work that we do in the places where I buy cocoa beans. The best example would be Tanzania. And so I know that working with cocoa farmers directly is one of my vocations as it relates to my vocation in the chocolate business. And so what that means is that I go. So last week, I just got back from the Amazon where I completed my 43rd origin trip since I started this business. Hmm. Well, it What's an origin trip? You mean like going to where the co- going to where the farmers are, going to visit them, going to check on the next crop, profit sharing with the farmers, um, and in some cases working on community development projects that we've been working with them on for years and some of these farmers I've been buying cocoa beans from for 10 years or more. And so in in answer to your question, <clears throat> Yeah. What this means is is that I'm not delegating that responsibility to mm-hmm. someone else because I know that working with these farmers is one of my callings as it relates to this business. And that means that I'm going to have the opportunity to experience and express mutuality with someone that I am doing business with, in quotes, that being a farmer. Hang on, his or her family. Sean, you're on a mission, dude, and that that is really impressive. So you take these trips to to the sources of your products in the in in the in the in the in the chain of uh, supply that 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 allows you to make the chocolate, the delicious chocolate that you make, um, in in part to express mutuality with your suppliers as. Right. As people, right. so yes. say more about how that helps your business. The, well, the first thing is, I would say that it helps me. Okay, and it helps me. It helps my. Um, it's it's a it is a practice. It's a uh, you could say a discipline and mm-hmm. a practice that um, that I that I aspire to and that I work on every day, every week, and every month and every year. And that is, can I, can I, in my work and in my business, can I find places where I am, where I have human connection and that I haven't delegated myself or managed myself or supervised myself out of that hmm. opportunity? Mm-hmm. And so if I'm face-to-face with people, and, 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 and especially in these cases where I'm traveling um, at great lengths, to very remote places, and often cases dealing with people who are in extreme poverty, mm-hmm. then that means that I am going to, this has nothing to do, you know, I, let me take that back. It has everything primarily to do with me and my heart. Can I, can I experience this mutuality, kinship, compassion, and can I understand that I am not the great white savior going Mm -hmm. to help them or provide solutions, but instead I stand on even keel with them, then if my heart can be transformed 
and I have the opportunity, and in some cases I've done this, I can count a handful of times, where I've literally experienced the divine <clears throat> at work in these cases, in these countries, in these places, during these times, then <clears throat> I have to delegate, I have to make sure that I do not grow or scale or mm. delegate myself out of that chance. And so if mm -hmm. I can do that, and that's one of the things I strongly believe and write about in the book, which is, and you, to, to, in answer to your question, one of the ways it's helped my business mm -hmm. is that I have not grown a lot. Mm -hmm. We're only 16 people, my daughter and I and 14 others, and we're, we are small by design, and that is countercultural, and that is not mm -hmm. easy. But what I've described to you is that means that I go myself. Mm -hmm. I seek these opportunities out, and I think and I'm getting to the answer uh, the, of your first, the mm -hmm. first part of your question, mm -hmm. which is how does it help my business? <clears throat> I believe that that makes for better chocolate. Maybe not more chocolate, <laughs> maybe not a whole lot more gross revenue, but it makes for better chocolate. And that means that who I am and who I have the opportunity to be is inseparable from my product or for your listeners, from your services or from your product. The same thing for you. This, what we're, our conversation right now, the work that you're doing on this radio show to get this message out, mm -hmm. tell stories is inseparable from who you are right i mean it, it, you can't take them apart no that's Someone true write a script and they could say hey this is Stu's script he's done this you know a billion times just go ask the same questions that he asked is uh -huh. it going to be the same show no it's not what do you do with your with your team with the people who you work with every day the <clears throat> the one word i would use in the that would answer the first part of your question is is how do I keep that going mm -hmm. from, from a personal standpoint the word is integration and you use that word a lot I do uh, and intentionally and that's what I do and I think that is very important um, because we know that peak experiences are great but what we but the real work is in the integration. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the coming back. Mm -hmm. It's as the, in the hero's journey, it's the return to the village and, and sharing the story with the community. You're referring and, to Campbell's work. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, so if I can pull the threads back from that experience with the divine, that's the key. How do I, how do I both remember it? and then integrate it into my daily life mm -hmm. and into my business and in a way that I can also share with coworkers but not seem like a, you know, weirdo that, you know, just constantly talking about that kind well, of thing. Well, you know, I want to ask about that because you have found a, a really creative way that's taken a long time uh, in your life uh, to, to really connect your work with other parts of your life that are deeply meaningful to you, including having one of your family members working with you, but also connecting to those uh, essential aspects of who you are as a person, your spirit, uh, and how that informs what you do with your work. It's, it's really a wonderful example of, of creating a sense of harmony or integration 
among the different parts of your life. Um, did people look at you funny when you start talking about this stuff when you when you're at the uh, uh, at the community center with you know talking with your peer CEOs or when you're going to conferences? Uh, what what's it like uh, in in the world of your your peers in the business world? I wonder. The the feel I I often have the feeling uh, that I'm swimming upstream, depending on the conference and depending on the 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 setting. So if I'm around, if I'm at a conference with CEOs from larger companies, mm-hmm. institutional, um, then I I sometimes get some blank stares. I also um, experience people really, really interested about how they can find this in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get a mix of both. When I very first started this endeavor, <laughs> I remember being in the little uh, coffee shop for lawyers at the bottom floor of the courthouse, just where lawyers would wait for their cases to be called. And uh, the people, almost everyone in that thought in that setting thought I was crazy. Uh, why would I, you know, turn away from a perfectly successful career making a lot of money and, you know, start something like this? So I've experienced all of it. But over time, I have been able to, um, here's another word that you use a lot. Mm-hmm. I love this word, and it's harmony. Mm-hmm. It's not balance. Balance is overrated. It's about harmony and integration. Mm-hmm. And so if I have been able to live this life as true as I can, as Merton would say, if you know, I can uncover my true self, if I can, if I can find my true self occasionally, this isn't an everyday thing. I mean, no. I get to see him, you know, once in a while. Him, your true so, self, you mean? Yes. The yes. real Sean? Yes. And so part of it, one of the times that I, and, and I know, I know now, I know enough now to expect the revelation and the appearance of my true self at at the unexpected time. So I'm expecting the unexpected. Hmm. But what I was going to say is, as I harmonize that and integrate that, then the people around me who either work with me or yeah, they customers, feel it. yeah, they they feel it and mm-hmm. they know that it's a natural. Mm-hmm. It's natural for me mm-hmm. to talk about you know, a theologian that I've just read about or something, or, you know, a Buddhist monk or um, some breathing technique that will help me relax. Or, you know, these are just common, it's just common language for me to talk about, you know, prayer, meditation, uh, living the life of, of a monk, the, where, I'm, where, I, where I'm a family brother at a Trappist monastery which I'm not a monk, but I mean, I'm saying I live among them when I'm there. You know, these are all, if you were to just take any one of these things and just by itself, you would think, oh, that's kind of weird. What, 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 but, but they all, they all fit together. But it's taken some time too, right? Yeah, and and that's, yeah, yes, that's one yeah. of the things I want, I want to uh, ask you more about, because I know that there are people listening who are wondering, wow, um, that sounds like a way to go, and that's not where I am right now. And and you have some really, really helpful wisdom in your book about how to uncover your, your vocation and how to help others to do it. Now, I, I want to get to some of the specific uh, recommendations that you offer readers because they're really helpful. 
uh, and you have a lot of credibility because of your story and and how you've drawn you know wisdom from your experience. Uh, but before we get to that, I'm wondering, you know, some people might be listening and thinking, well, he made a ton of money as a defense lawyer, so he's able to you know in, invest in, in small batch chocolate you know production. Uh, what about people who haven't had 20 years of being, uh, you know, a no-lose criminal defense lawyer and and amassing whatever? I I mean, I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure there are people thinking, like, how do you do this, like, if you're just a regular person who doesn't have that kind of access to resources? Great question. The, 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 the way I would answer it is to think about it this way. <clears throat> For the last 13 years, I have made an income what I used to pay in taxes, okay? <laughs> and that, that is, that is, uh, that is a cold bucket of water that I've lived with and I'm fine with, but it's a significantly different lifestyle. I don't live mm. the same lifestyle that I did when I had that um, kind of income. Right. And it's true. I did save my money and I did not need an investor or a partner, um, but I did have to get a bank loan. And so oh. I would say, I would so you say, didn't well, just do it on your own. You, you had no, to. You had to borrow. I had to get a loan. I had to get a loan to mm-hmm. buy the real estate and to buy some of the equipment at mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. And and I think another important thing to remember is what I said about reverse scale. I mean, we're small. I don't. I don't. My gross revenues are not huge. We are profitable. I share profits with farmers, and have done that since the very first cocoa bean buy I made 14 years ago. We open our books to farmers. I translate my financials into their language. In a, in a month, I'll be in Tanzania, wow. and my, langu- my my financials will be in Swahili. Oh, Last week, goodness. they were in Spanish when I was in the Amazon. Uh-huh. And so, this I could make more money, but but this is this is the path that I've chosen. Why? Because of what we talked about 30 minutes ago, which is this is a way for me to maintain human connection and to not be distant, distant mm-hmm. and distanced from mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is if you're in, you're in college and you're coming to these kind of realizations, yes. what, do you, what do you do? You don't have those resources. You find them. You, you, you find either the resources to do it by a partner, by, by an investor, by a bank, and people say, well, I don't know that there's money out there. Yes, there is. Actually, money is not that hard to find. What's hard to find is the right money, which I, I will grant you that. But it's absolutely possible. And if it's not immediately evident how that can come to be, then find a place like mine where you go work and you, you begin to live out your own vocation within this within the context of this business, or you go to work at a place and you help that business identify its calling, its vocation as an organization. And believe me, companies of all sizes need that kind of help now. And it absolutely can be done at the largest of organizations. How, how would you with, do it at a lot of our students uh, here at the Wharton School, they go into banking or consulting. Um, how would one how, how does that translate into, into that universe? Uh, well, um, we know 
Gallup says that two-thirds of the American workforce is disengaged and that 55 percent of, ex- of executives are not engaged at work. That's a real number. Mm-hmm. It's been around for a long time. Oh, yeah. and, interna- and internationally, it's mm-hmm. worse. Mm-hmm. So your students have this unbelievable opportunity mm-hmm. to be the creators of engagement at work. If it's at a bank, if it's at fill-in-the-blank consulting firm, doesn't matter. They're this generation, your students, you know, the, 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 the people now in college, in grad school, are, they are going to be the change makers. Uh, they will be the ones driving this force to engagement at work over the next 25, 50 years. And this, it's, it's going to happen. It is happening. And it's happening one of two ways. It's either going to be – it will be because of leaders who are coming out of your school and other schools um, right now and people who feel the drive to be part of this and to help create it. And the second way it's going to happen is by force. How long can we have two-thirds of the workforce disengaged and capitalism as we know it remain the same? We can't. You know, many people don't see how they can sort of break out of the mold that they feel that they are set in. And you offer some very specific um, guidelines for how people at different career stages, it's not just about starting your own business, um, can can uncover this sense of vocation or calling. Could you briefly summarize what those those main steps are? Sure. The um, first thing I would do is, one, is I would recommend um, – if, if you're interested in something that we do at our company and that we teach and I write about in the book, I'm not the expert on it, but I write about visioning. And, and we do this with farmers. We do it with middle school students. Um, and visioning is this concept that I've learned from Ari Weinzweig, who is the co-founder of Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's a great friend. He, if you, any of your listeners, can find any book written by Ari Weinzweig at Zingerman's on visioning, read it. That will be, I think, one of the great steps in helping uncover mm-hmm. um, your vocation. Mm-hmm. So, but <clears throat> for me, I think the first step is in, in this path is to put the books down, uh, get away from the Google search box, don't research the answer to this question because it's not there. Um, the second thing is to <clears throat> take this very simple step, um, writing in a notebook, uh, this visioning that I've been discussing, and at the same time, begin to put together this um, inventory of the combination of your talents, your passion, and what the world needs. This mm-hmm. isn't, I didn't make this up. This is a good place to start and mm-hmm. begin seeing when you, when you write this down, where are the intersections? Where are the places yep. where you want intersections? And then I ask people, as we've been talking about throughout your show, is to begin with sorrow. Take a look at the heartbreak in your own life. The, the other way I say it is, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And I say, begin serving people <clears throat> who need you out of that spot in your broken heart. And just <clears throat> and just do something, right? And do something, yes. Don't wait. Let me ask, uh, what, what's the most important idea that you're trying to get across in meaningful work? The most important idea is that you have a broken heart. Begin working with your broken heart, not to fix it, 
but to understand it so that you can have a greater expression of kindness and compassion in your life. And one of the best ways of doing that is by serving someone who needs you. And I promise you, someone needs you. Someone needs your broken heart. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity and serve them and expect nothing in return. Expect nothing. That's what I hope people can be inspired by and they can understand and find their lives transformed. And, and to bring dignity to their own yeah. lives and, to, and to, the, to the world around them. A question I've been asking everyone, uh, everyone this year, how do you hold yourself accountable for living according to your values? I mean, it's probably obvious if you've been listening for the last hour, but in, in, in 20 seconds, how would you respond to that question? The first way I hold myself accountable is through a daily practice, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's a morning practice, an evening practice, and a prayer practice. The main way that I hold myself accountable, I would say globally, is through something that I wrote called a rule of life, which I had to do as a family brother at Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery. I talk about it in the book, how people can write their own rule of life. You don't have to be a Trappist, but um, that has a weekly, monthly, annual um, way for me to live my life, and it's essentially a document of accountability. Awesome. And the monks hold me to it. Wow. Uh, so how can people find out more about the remarkable work you are doing uh, as, as an author, a philosopher, and uh, with your company? The best way is askinosie.com, A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E. That's our chocolate business, and there's a lot to see there. And then my own personal website is seanaskinosie.com, and there's uh, – um, I've written uh, blog entries there, and I continue to do that, and there's things about the book, and then a link to my most recent TEDx talk. Awesome. That's fantastic. Thank you for those resources, uh, for taking the time to share your remarkable story with us. Uh, Sean Eskinosi, CEO and founder of Eskinosi Chocolate, author of Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, Feed Your Soul. Really appreciate your joining us on the show tonight. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Stu. I want to take your class. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean Askinosi and that you found it to be informative and inspirational. So I have a challenge for you, an invitation. I want to encourage you to think about, difficult as it might be, the pain points, the heartbreak or grief in your own life. Every one of us has such moments, such experiences or episodes, right? And just think for a bit about how you might use that part of your history, your story, as a jumping-off point to consider what you might do to help others, maybe by volunteering, if not in your paid work life, as a way to both heal and enrich your life. Let me know what you discover if you do indeed pursue this. I would love to hear from you and invite you to get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.